0: Dr. Steven Tuber, give me a name.
1: Donald Woods Winnicott.
0: Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. This episode is about a psychoanalyst, so if you want to approach this podcast in a traditional Freudian way, lie on a couch and don't make eye contact with the phone as you listen. I am here with Dr. Stephen Tuber. He is professor of psychology, director of clinical training, and program head of the doctoral program in clinical psychology at City College, CUNY, where he has taught for over 35 years. Is that right?
1: I started at age seven. <laughs> yeah.
0: They typically don't let anyone into CUNY, apparently.
1: It's, inc- it's incredible, yeah.
0: <laughs> and he is the author of eight books, over 150 papers, and perhaps the book that is most relevant to our discussion today, Attachment, Play and Authenticity, Winnicott in a Clinical Context. And we are here to talk about D.W. Winnicott or Donald Winnicott, who I believe is one of your
1: idols. Him and Bill Russell of the Celtics are probably the top two, but for slightly different reasons, yeah.
0: Winnicott was born in Plymouth in England, and he is known of course for his writings on psychology and on child psychology in particular and also for his radio broadcasts, which began during World War II, when he spoke directly to the English people during the war effort.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I think he really is a hero to me, because I think he's one of the very few people in the world who walk the walk and not just talk a good game. The story you were talking about in terms of his radio broadcasts, this was during the Blitz in, the, you know, 1940. In England, when the Germans on a pretty much regular schedule of almost every evening for almost 18 months would bomb various parts of the city. And so you can just imagine what it was like for a family uh, with their children when the sirens would go off in early evening, everyone would rush into the underground way, way deep below the streets, and they could hear bombing in the background and would never really know when they came up above ground whether or not their house would still be standing. And that level of incredible fear and, and worry you know, was having clearly a traumatizing effect uh, right in front of the British government's eyes. And so one of the ways in which they thought to cope was to have someone be able to speak to the people in a calm and reassuring way and help them recognize that there are things that they could do for their children. And that feeling of feeling competent and, and being able to help their children was a real antidote to their own terror about what would happen at the next bombing. And so they asked Winnicott to start to speak over their intercom system to reassure the parents and the children that they could be okay and to acknowledge how scary and how vulnerable they felt. That says an incredible amount about his stature in the community, not just within the field of psychiatry, but really almost as a political statement about understanding what a reassuring therapeutic voice could do, even in the midst of the most horrible times imaginable. It's, it's a, remor- a remarkable honor, I think, just about as meaningful an honor as somebody could have in the academic psychology field. You know, and there's one other thing about it that's so important, which is that given how popular he was, given how prolific he was, and given how esteemed he was, he could have easily had any job he wanted in the field or just had a very lucrative private practice. And instead, for almost his entire career, he worked in what would be considered an inner city working poor environment, sort of like as if he were, would work in Bellevue Hospital today. And that to me is also such a great example of someone with the courage to um not just be a therapist, but to be a caring human being for people who often are marginalized and don't have access to that kind of care.
0: And just to tie that into his biography, he came from Means.
1: Yes. Oh, absolutely. His father was a member of parliament and very much considered one of the much more important people in the city of Plymouth. And so he came from Means and was raised and adored by two older sisters and uh coddled in all kinds of ways so to go from that background and by the way his father very much wanted him to go into politics and follow in his footsteps and so for him to have the courage to go to medical school instead at the time was also a a real act of uh, being his own person.
0: I must say as a Jewish kid the idea that it was disappointing your parents to go into medical school is a very... (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's a a very good point. Um, But you know, in, in those days, physicians, A, didn't make a lot of money and B, because science was still so underdeveloped, it was not seen as some really great career to go into in that way. I think the other part about Winnicott that I always admire very personally is that idea that he was his own person and that he was striving to be as authentic a person as he could be. And, you know, when you read his writing, I think, Most psychologists would say that if they had access to any one of his articles while they were in graduate school or college, that they were immediately struck by how authentic and how personal his writing was. And even if he talked about some very complex theoretical ideas, he did it in such a humane way. You could hear his voice. You could hear a person behind the writing and not just some much more intellectualized kind of person. So he was a remarkable guy.
0: And would he be the first psychologist to really write in that style if you compare him to the people who preceded him?
1: It's a great question, Ben. Many people think that Freud was also a beautiful writer. Uh, You know, it's always tricky because what we're reading is, is English translations. We're not reading him in his natural language. But many people who read German said that Freud himself was a great writer. But even that, I don't think he had the same personal kind of connection to his writing that Winnicott had. I think he, uh, even to this day, you know, writes in a style that's pretty much unique.
0: So just to set the timing a little bit, Freud is turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s. Winnicott is born in 1896. So Mm -hmm. by the time he enters the world of psychotherapy, what are the major theories, the, the major schools of thought?
1: It's really a great question, Ben. You know, Freud was born in uh, in the 1850s, and his book that made him a a notable figure in the field came out in 1900. So by the time Winnicott was of age to go to medical school, around 1920 or so, Freud was already by far and away the most ascendant theoretician in the world of sort of psychiatry and psychology. His theory was most powerful. Uh, Cognitive behavioral treatment and theory, for example, didn't really start until the 1920s. So if you were at all into psychiatry around Winnicott's time, sort of in the 1920s, Freudian psychodynamic treatment was really the way to go. And he began his own psychoanalysis in the early 20s while I think while he was still in medical school or might have been shortly thereafter. You know, one of the things that's so striking about him that I also can relate to since I'm primarily trained as a child psychologist is that he was originally trained to be a pediatrician. And for many, many years was only one of two people, a woman named Phyllis Greenacre was the other, who was trained as both a pediatrician and a psychoanalyst. And perhaps the most striking difference between him and Freud is that Freud built a whole theory about the importance of the first years of life, having never really worked with or seen a lot of children at all. He he had an quite a large number of children in his family, whereas apparently Winnicott was supposed to have seen over 30,000 children in the course of his pediatric work, so that his theory was incredibly influenced by real-life experience with young children, especially with mothers and babies.
0: And Freud has some successors in the first half of the 20th century, including his own daughter.
1: Mm -hmm. So now you're getting into more of the gossipy part of the field, which is always fun, you know. Um, Let's do uh, it. So, yeah, there you go. So, uh, you know, so one of Freud's daughters, Anna Freud, became a very revered child psychologist and child psychoanalyst. So in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, especially in the, let's say, so Freud himself died in 1939. And in his later years, he was very much taken care of by Anna And Anna was very much invested in keeping his uh, status as a a primary figure in the field alive and well. And so when the Freud family escaped Europe and escaped the Nazis in the very late 30s and came to England, Anna Freud was really a major force in creating a clinic called the Hempstead Clinic to carry on her father's psychoanalytic work. Another refugee from, from the Nazis was a woman named Melanie Klein and Melanie Klein and Anna Freud became the two pivotal people in the child psychoanalytic field and became heated rivals with one another. And there were all kinds of crazy political fights that went on in the British Psychoanalytic Society with whether you were a Kleinian or an Anna Freudian. And, um, you know, Winnicott being Winnicott was not at all invested in creating his own cult of followers. To him, that would have been going against the grain of being your own person. So he refused to join either camp. In many ways, overlapped in a lot of ideas with both of them, but was very clear about how his voice and his way of doing therapy and his way of thinking about child development was really distinct from either one of them. And that was very important for him to both keep his own ideas separate and not get pulled into it. But to give you some of the gossip, So uh, Melanie Klein was insistent on wanting her son to be in treatment, and she decided that she wanted Winnicott to be his therapist, which is, you know, perfectly fine, except that she wanted the ability to supervise the case. So can you imagine being someone (laughs) supervising your own son's psychoanalysis? And Winnicott, to his great credit, said, are you out of your mind? Um, and, And said no. And that always created a certain degree of, of a rift between the two of them. And I think I would also say that um, Winnicott's style was more like Anna Freud's than like Melanie Klein's. Melanie Klein was someone who um, didn't have a strong investment in working with the parents of the kid and felt very much that you interpreted very often and very quickly into the play of the young child, whereas Anna Freud was much more about working with parents and and giving them guidance, as well as giving the child just the chance to play without a lot of interpretation. Winnicott really, again, yet another reason why I hold him in such high esteem is that for him, the capacity to play is really the, the hallmark of what it means to live a creative whole life. And so he always looked for what was going on in the family that was inhibiting the child's capacity to play, and he would hopefully try to provide because he was such an incredibly playful person himself that he could get children very quickly to feel unselfconscious and able to just play and describe and what they were feeling in their play. And that really was a place of Winnicott's brilliance because he was so good at getting kids to play. The kids could in many ways start to cure themselves because in their play, they could master a lot of the conflicts that they were struggling with. And Winnicott was, you know, really remarkable that way.
0: And just to sort of define play, it seems like it's pretty generalized, right? Just something creative or something fun.
1: Yeah, you know, the thing about play is as much the process as it is the content. So when Freud first, first kind of created psychoanalysis as a field, one of his prime techniques was the idea of free association that if the patient just sort of let their mind go to wherever they wanted to go and just said said out loud their stream of consciousness, eventually they would get to some important, more unconscious parts of their personality. and, And the analyst would sort of interpret that and make sense out of that. And then the person could feel a greater connection to their inner being. Play for a child is like free association for an adult. It allows the child to develop themes and work on conflicts with very little inhibition, the play just goes and takes off, you know, so you can have a concrete example, you can have a child who's feeling extremely anxious, and a great deal of their anxiety is their fear of their own aggressive feelings toward, let's say, the birth of a new sibling. And so they're afraid to express that um, rivalry or hostility, because they're afraid they're going to lose their parents' love. And yet, on the other hand, they don't know what to do with with that aggression and start to feel very guilty and pained by it. And so they can develop all kinds of conflicts. So a a child like that can go into a play therapy situation and play out with some action figures of a, let's say, a cow family and have a mommy and a daddy and kids and and play out a scene where the baby gets violently attacked and destroyed by one one of the other animal figures. the safety of that is, is that that kind of assault can happen, but it doesn't happen in real life. And so the child knows on some level that it's safe to enact it. And the therapist can help the child be able to get in touch with what are the feelings that are stirred up by this kind of play. And then hopefully that allows the child to master those feelings, put them into words, make sense out of them, and no longer feel as conflicted inside. And then hopefully their symptoms start to die down.
0: Were there other techniques that he would use in order to kind of stimulate play uh, or, or stimulate that part of the mind?
1: Well, you know, it, it's it's uh, my, my first response has nothing to do with kids, actually, because one of the other things about Winnicott that was so striking was, was that he also had a certain portion of his practice working with very severely psychotic adults and people who had really had profound trauma In their early lives, and were really had all kinds of delusions and fantasies that that were really quite distorted. And one of the ways in which he was so unique, you know, again, if you think about Freud and think about psychoanalysis, people are on the couch; they're not looking at the therapist. You know, the therapist is behind the couch, and so everything is sort of disconnected in a way. Where apparently, when uh, Winnicott worked with these very very um, disturbed adults, he would sit very close to them. Uh, on a chair such that their knees were almost touching, the person would sit up and often he would put out his hands and the patient would put their hands in Winnicott's hands. And Winnicott would sort of literally hold them while they were talking about terrors and horrible experiences that they felt. And so that kind of behavior now would probably get you sued you know, sure. for, <laughs> you know for, it, for, for violating boundaries between patient and therapist. But to him, he felt like these patients had such traumatic early lives that they were never really held and cared for in that way. And so he was going to provide that literal kind of holding as a way to help the patient feel like they didn't have to stay trapped in the terrors of their early life. They could actually find people who could care for them and, and connect to them in very meaningful ways. Now, again, he was so authentic and he was so much his own person that if he felt that's what the patient needed, he was going to provide that. And he really didn't care whether there was a doctrine that said, oh, you shouldn't do that or not. Part of why the book title that you mentioned starts off with authenticity is that to me, that was always the most remarkable quality about him, that he was so much his own person and so comfortable in his own skin that he could do and say things that people would find outrageous in a certain way. He was also, in his own way, a very shy, awkward guy. There's a story about him when he was in his late 60s. So, so, you know, in the last few years of his life and and really the last 20 or so years of his life, he suffered from a very severe heart condition. So he was a pretty fragile person physically. And when somebody was going to come to see him that he realized he didn't want to go see he went out to the, his front yard and climbed up the tree and sort of hid in the, in the branches of the tree so that the person wouldn't know that, they were, that he was there and then would leave. So, you know, he was a quirky guy, but very endearing, at least to me.
0: To go back to this idea of authenticity, I find it so interesting because authenticity is a very hard thing to teach, especially, I mean, if he's in some way explaining how to be a quote-unquote good therapist... And you're saying it's authenticity, then you're kind of saying that there's many, many ways to skin the cat. Could that make a therapist in training a little anxious? Because it's not like, hey, you know, follow these rules kind of thing?
1: For sure. And and I think he would say that it takes a certain kind of therapist, certain kind of person to want to do that kind of therapy. You know, there are plenty of therapies that are very structured, if not manualized. And for someone who needs those kinds of uh, structures. And that approach to therapy would make sense to that person. And that person right. might, be, might be great as a cognitive behavioral therapist, but would be lousy as a psychodynamic play therapist, for example. In my training of students, you know, the, the faculty feel strongly that the students should get their own therapy and that, uh, so that they can be as free from their own inner conflicts as possible, and therefore allow themselves to be as authentic as possible But you're absolutely right, you know, um, being trained in this field and in particular in this approach to therapy has a very powerful effect on the therapist and takes a lot of work psychologically to stay true to yourself and to, uh, to stay open to what the patient brings and what the patient needs. I don't think nowadays, thank goodness, there's not a kind of doctrine, you know, doctrinaire approach that says, if you go into this kind of therapy, this is exactly what you get and nothing else. And there is much more freedom for the therapist to be able to adapt to the patient's needs, which is what it's all about.
0: So I want to get into a few of his most well-known theories and Mm -hmm. additions to the world of psychology in the early part of the 1900s and middle of the 1900s. The idea of the difference between your true self and your false self. Mm. What's going on there?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of people would say that that is next to the importance of play, that that's sort of his most core idea. And it certainly speaks directly to this notion of authenticity. So what he's saying is is that, imagine yourself as a young baby and you have been fortunate enough in the first six months of your life, eight months of your life, that whenever you feel distress, that a caretaker comes along quite quickly and can soothe you. And that this caretaker knows how to read you well enough so that they know what cry means that you're hungry, what cry means that you just uh, need sleep, what cry means that you just need to be cuddled. And so that caretaker provides that kind of care repeatedly and reliably. And if that happens, they give the greatest gift that you can give to a human being, which ironically and paradoxically is the gift of being able to take the parent for granted and turn toward the world to to be curious about it and to make sense about it. So the the baby who's been fortunate enough to have very attuned and responsive parents is a baby who is going to be able to look away from the folks and not have to worry that the parent's gonna disappear on them. And when they look away without having to have anxiety, they can take on the world and learn how to crawl and walk and explore things and do all the things that a thriving baby does Including over time, the capacity to play with the objects in your world and to discover that they can do certain things. So, when you have had that kind of reliability in a positive way, and you now can feel comfortable being curious about the world, you also develop a sense of competence. You know, the world must be a good place because, you know, I can do all these things and they're curious and they're fun. And whenever I get it all distressed, I can turn to a parent and that parent is there for me and soothes me. And that allows me to then go back out into the world again and do all this stuff. So I start to feel like who I am is essentially lovable and, and is really good enough to make sense out of the world. And so I can feel comfortable being true to myself. So a true self comes from that kind of, of supportive, secure, attuned caretaking that allows the child to feel like the world is going to be a very benevolent place. But now flip it around and imagine if the same uh, six-month-old child has a a caretaker, a primary caretaker, who is battling their own demons and can be really, really anxious or be really depressed or be self-absorbed. And so often when that child turns to the mom for support, the mom may not be there or may be there only in a very unreliable or intermittent sort of way. So now the child feels like they always have to look over their shoulder because they're never sure whether their mom or dad or whoever the primary caretaker is, they can't be sure that that caretaker is gonna be there for them. So suddenly their attachment to the world is based on a kind of insecure basis. And what will happen is, is that the child will increasingly try to figure out what can I do to ensure the availability of my parents? And if that means I have to deny certain parts of myself and put on more of a false front, then I will do that if in fact that works. So a baby might even learn that if they just keep on, you know, by the time they're two or three or four, that they just comply with whatever the parent says and will avoid in any way speaking up and being their own person. And when they, in fact, act in that very polite way that they actually get their parents' caretaking to a greater extent, then the baby becomes, and the young child becomes very invested in this facade of behavior that says, it may be false, but at least I know that I get my parents in a way that I, I want to get them. And the notion of a false self is to what, and, and by the way, they're agreed, there's a, it's a continuum. It's not like you're either all a true self or all a false self. All of us have parts of ourselves that we hide away and prevent from being exposed to other people or only expose them to our core connections. But I I do think that if there's a severe amount of the child having to take care of the parent, then that kind of false self becomes very powerful and can very easily be extrapolated to other people. So that child, when they go to preschool, uh, feels that they have to act a certain way to get their preschool teachers to respond to them in a positive way. If the child is lucky, there are other people outside in the wider world as they go along who are more more willing to tolerate the child's eccentricities. And therefore the child doesn't become as rigid a false self. But if in fact their false self gets perpetuated by all the people around them as they grow into the world, at the extreme, a person can become an adult and really not have a sense at all of who they are. And, and, and therefore their adjustment can be very brittle because it's resting on a very, a very flimsy foundation.
0: And is here where psychotherapy could come in to kind of help someone who's had a less fortunate first few six months, you know, first uh, or upbringing in general?
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and the more pervasive the falseness, the harder the therapist has to work and the longer the therapy has to take in many ways to overcome that kind of fragility.
0: He also has this idea that I came across when I was reading about him of the good enough mother. I kept mm. seeing that phrase over and over again. Is it sure. exactly what it sounds like?
1: So I think a lot of people would, would agree with what I'm about to say, which is that for Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud grew up Jewish in a time in Austria where it was not particularly safe to be a Jew. There was a lot of anti-Semitism, And I think for, for that and many other reasons, Freud had a very pessimistic view of of the world and of mankind in general. Uh, You know, one of his last books, Civilization and Its Discontents, really talked about how hard it is to be a benign, benevolent person in the world in the face of all kinds of cruelties and wars and, and things that human beings are prone to. In many ways, because Winnicott grew up in kind of a bubble of being in a kind of very secure place, Winnicott was a much more optimistic person and his approach to parents was also optimistic. So he did not believe that a parent needed to be perfect or try to be perfect in order for them to feel comfortable raising their child, but that they just needed to be good enough and that the child brought their own strengths and their own resources to the relationship. And as long as the parent didn't sort of screw up things too badly, the kid would really turn out fine. And again, a lot of that comes from the fact that if you'd seen 30,000 mother-baby pairs over the course of your professional life, you probably saw an incredible variation in what parents could be. And yet the kids would sort of turn out okay. So he probably had a lot of empirical data that suggested that the pathways to a reasonably healthy life were very varied. And that if you were just good enough in terms of being there enough of the time, as opposed to you have to be there every second. I mean, it makes us think about um, this whole idea of sort of hovering helicopter parents that people talk about nowadays, or even, you know, snowplow parents that sort of feel like they constantly have to pave the way for their child so the child doesn't have any sort of difficulty. Winnicott would have a very horrible time with that because he would feel like that kind of hovering did not allow the child to sort of be themselves. And also that he would argue that that puts way too much pressure on the parent to somehow think about and predict and take every stone out of the road ahead of the child so the child doesn't you know, trip and bump you know, his or her knee. So I think the, the notion of, of good enough, really, as simple as it sounds, I think, I think it really spoke to Winnicott's inherent kind of optimism about how how kids could could wind up okay
0: the optimism part is interesting to me because i understand that his upbringing was much more coddled but he also lived through world war ii which freud did not and Mm -hmm. of course for many thinkers world war ii was a turning point in terms of how they saw the world is that true in winnicott's case or he kind of maintained that optimism
1: so, you know, I think one of the, you know, obviously I'm such, a, I'm such a fan of his that I'm turning almost everything into a positive. I'll leave a critique of Winnicott for some other person down the line <laughs> in, your, uh, in your podcast, right? But I think to me what made Winnicott a great therapist was that as optimistic as he was about the world and optimistic about the general quality of the average mother, I think he was never somebody who hid away from aggression. For example, his most famous paper is a paper called Hate in the Counter-Transference. And in that paper, he lists 33 different reasons why mothers hate their babies. Uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, those through all these things about uh, the baby spitting up food and giving you a hard time. But then when you put the baby in the stroller and you go out into the street, it's calm and wonderful. And all, and all these people go by and say, oh, what a sweet baby. And meanwhile, you just wanted to strangle him 10 minutes before. And so he was aware of people's aggression, aware of his own aggression, but he was not frightened by it. And he still felt that you could be real and and experience that kind of hate without necessarily meaning that the world is a horrible place. And again, part of why I think he did well by his patience was that he wasn't Pollyannish. He wasn't like, oh, things are going to be great. I'll just give you some support and you'll be fine. He could very much call a spade a spade and talk about all kinds of violent fantasies that that his patients had and acknowledge those violent fantasies, but still feel like a person could work them through and come out the other side. And again, part of what makes his papers so readable is he can acknowledge that therapists can also easily be uncomfortable, bumbling people at times and how hard it is to be a good therapist and how much you have to work on acknowledging your own hateful feelings. And I think that that's so true.
0: So one thing that I think is worth mentioning, and we could talk about whether it's noteworthy or not, is that, well, he was married twice. He was married to Alice Winnicott and then Claire Winnicott. He never had kids. And you did mention that he was a pediatrician and he worked with kids many, many times. But Do you think that not having kids and being one of the most famous child psychologists in history, is there some sort of contradiction there or is it, you know, just how it sometimes goes?
1: Well, it it is interesting. Uh, There are a number of sort of leading lights in the field of child therapy and, and psychodynamic play therapy. Most of them were women and a good significant portion of them did not have children. So that really is an interesting point. And you do wonder whether had he had kids of his own, to what extent that might've changed some of his theorizing, you know, nobody knows that. But uh, I think um, his first wife was a a pretty depressed person. It's unclear whether or not either he or she or both couldn't have children, but his actual career really started to flourish when he met his second wife right in the middle of World War II. So a a good part of... um, why the the world war might not have affected him in the same way as that he was probably in love for the first time in his life. And uh, that, that makes you ignore all kinds of things, including world wars. And also
0: just to put it in the context of World War II, I can't help thinking that going back to the true self and the false self and this idea of someone following the rules in a way that is not authentic do you think, I, I'm not exactly sure of the timing of some of these theories, but could he have been looking at Germany and sort of the robotic Hitler youth type thing and seen the opposite of what he was kind of going for? Kids that were really stepping in line, so to speak?
1: It's a great question, Ben. Uh, most of his writings came out after World War II, and he, he was at his most prolific in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. and and again at that point in his life he was he was an older person he was in his prime he was happily married so there was a lot of very positive things going on for him in terms of his own productivity but i certainly don't recall anything that he wrote during the 40s during the war that had anything to do with sort of uh nazi germany and 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 that kind of uh, robotic sort of adherence to authority I, you know certainly he talked more in general, sort of after the war, about how some of the things that he talked about at the individual human being level also could generalize to the whole level of a nation uh, or even the world in terms of a nation as a whole feeling comfortable with their own aggression, being able to, to acknowledge their own aggressions. And he certainly was a big believer that the more you can acknowledge your own aggression, the less likely you are to act it out. And so you know, countries that were very belligerent you know, often had leaders who were very blind. Uh, you know, if you, you know, Putin you know, couldn't be a better example of how one's own personal pathology and lack of a deep humanity can allow you to you know, extrapolate that. And if you give that person enough power, they can actually declare war on other countries in a, an incredibly you know, despotic, violent way.
0: One thing that I wanted to ask you is that, so you teach Winnicott, Winnicott is still being very much taught in schools. Is that rare for a psychotherapist from 75 years ago?
1: So there certainly are a few people who stand the test of time and others who may not you know. It's a, it's a, if you're interested in that kind of world, it's interesting to think about who survives over time and who doesn't and who can be incredibly popular at a given moment, but then 20 or 30 years later, no longer rings true in that way. I think if you could probably make pretty good argument that Winnicott, in his own way, is as popular, if not more popular, now than he ever was. And I think that's because you know my biases is that because he's uh, really a truth teller, because he really speaks in this eloquent, poetic way about incredibly powerful personal experiences, and I think you know, without getting too philosophical, I think, you know, the world we live in, in which the technology has taken on such an incredibly intense, powerful life, the idea that you and I are talking in this way and seeing one another, I'm old enough to know that when in the 1964 World's Fair, there was this notion of this exotic thing in one of the, I think the General Electric Pavilion or something where you could see the person who you were talking to on the phone and everyone marveled about it. What an amazing thing that is. And here we're doing it without even a thought and not even using a phone, you know? So, so I do think technology is remarkable, but I also think it's gone a long way toward making people feel less connected in lots of ways and certainly mm-hmm. less authentic. And so Winnicott speaking to the power of authenticity, I think touches people in a very, very, very real way so that I think he's really sort of thriving as a theorist that people read about.
0: So Winnicott probably wouldn't have an Instagram page and be really promoting the next book.
1: <laughs> yeah, that would be my guess, right? Especially since <laughs> apparently it was his wife, Claire, who promoted all of his books and he wasn't particularly interested. Like, you know, he, would, he wrote something like 600 articles, but most of them were very short articles. And it was she who pushed him to put them together and make them into books. So no, I don't think he would have had his own uh, social media platform particularly.
0: So I usually ask the question of why the guest chose a certain person. In this case, I feel like you've been certainly sprinkling that throughout. Is there a particular idea or theory that he had that really, really strikes you that we haven't mentioned yet today?
1: I think we've hit on most of them. You know, the the idea of of the importance of play, the idea of of a true versus false self, the idea of a holding environment, you know, that the ability to, to sort of create a safe space in the therapy for the patient to talk about almost everything. The one thing we haven't talked about is something that really was a truly original idea of his, which is the whole idea of a transitional object. Mm. Uh, And uh, the idea that um, many, 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 if not most children, some people might argue all children, develop an attachment to an object or a behavior that soothes them. And so often it's a teddy bear or a blanket for some people, it's the way they twirl their hair or they have a certain mannerism when they get anxious. They might you know, rub their nose or do something, some repetitive act that without even realizing it, they do at tiny moments of stress in order to feel okay. And the whole idea that a baby can tolerate going off to sleep on their own by the time they're 10, 12 months old is a remarkable thing. And one of the things that makes it remarkable and possible is that if they've imbued that feeling of connection and safety uh, from their parent onto a blanket or a stuffed animal, by holding that animal, they feel that security. So the, the Linus character is sort of the embodiment of Winnicott's transitional object, and he expanded it even in all kinds of interesting ways. So for him, art and religion as adults are very much kind of transitional phenomena when you believe in a God that you can't see and can't talk to, so that is it real or is it just in your imagination or is it some combination of the two? But certainly if you believe in God, you feel very strongly that this being exists, even though you can't really kind of describe what this being would look like or, or anything like that. So that notion of something being real, but not entirely real, and yet serving a very soothing function I think that is a huge part of uh, all of our experiences. And, and I think that was really one of his most original contributions.
0: And I always find it interesting with those objects that a lot of the times kids, maybe adults too, they kind of drop them abruptly sometimes um, and either move on to the next thing or perhaps decide like, ah, I don't really need you know this teddy bear anymore. Is there a reason for that? <laughs> like why, why are people so harsh with their teddy bears It reminds me of the song Puff the Magic Dragon, like you don't you don't need him anymore. Totally.
1: Well, what's so great about your, your point, Ben, is that that also speaks to the role of hate and aggression in Winnicott's theory. When you have a teddy bear that you like, you don't always treat it very gently. As a matter of fact, you can throw it in the mud or pull it around or grab it or do all kinds of torturous things to it. And it's that it's the fact that the teddy bear survives your aggression that makes it so special just like when you can be really angry at your parent in a way that you probably don't think you could ever get away with being angry at your teacher or a coach or whatever. And if your parent survives your being angry at them, then you feel more lovable because how bad could I be? If I, you know, if I uh, grab my mom's hair and pull on my mom's hair because I'm angry because she won't give me a cookie. And instead of hitting the kid, the, the mother is able to survive that and distract them and eventually gets their hair back then the baby has this remarkable experience of, even when I'm at my most aggressive, I'm still loved and cared for. So how dangerous could I be? How, how bad could I be if in fact, I'm even at my worst, I'm tolerated. So the parent who doesn't retaliate gives the child an incredible gift in that way. And so part of what's great about the teddy bear or the blanket is that you can drag the blanket through the mud outside, And the blanket doesn't get mad at you and the blanket stays the same. It's why for a lot of kids, you know, you don't want to wash the blanket too much because it loses its smell, it loses its fuzziness or whatever. And and the the baby feels reassured by the familiarity of of those tactile qualities and things. But it is true. Well, I'll give you a a funny story. I was asked a number of years years ago, a woman was writing an article about transitional objects for the Times and somehow she got my name And so she interviewed me and and I gave her a couple of quotes. But when she sent me back the article, it also went on the the computer format. It also had a a lot of comments that people wrote back about the story. And what was great was that almost every single comment was of an adult secretly saying and acknowledging that they still had their transitional object. Um, (laughs) So so even though a lot of people just get rid of them, there are people who keep them and keep them forever. I certainly know the stories of, especially women seem to be able to do it much more easily than men, that you go to a woman's dormitory room, that they almost always have a couple of stuffed animals from their life laying on their bed. Boys have to always hide those feelings. So they might, if they have one, they would stick it in a drawer and not make it so obvious. Yeah,
0: no, 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 for sure. I had uh, plenty of stuffed animals just (laughs) hidden underneath my pillow. There you go. (laughs) Well, Dr. Tuber, thank you so much for talking to me about Winnicott and sharing your expertise and your passion for one of the most prominent psychotherapists of the 20th century.
1: Thank you, Ben. It was really great fun to do this and uh, good luck with the rest of your podcast as well. Take good care.